of George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. The school holidays have arrived in my household and Let's Make Art, a new podcast sponsor, has been a real smash hit. Their custom art boxes have gone down a treat with not only the little but the big kids in my house as well. Whether it's a miserable day and you're stuck indoors or you want to just have a chill day at home but enjoy the sun outside, there really is a custom art box for you. Anyone can have an art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits and supplies for a variety of different activities. Whether like me, you're a total beginner, an absolute amateur or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each art box, they are designed to encourage, support and enhance your experience with art. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today and be sure to use promo code UFOART in the checkout and you will save 20% off your order. That's a huge 20% off. I've posted my special link in the show notes so you can go to zen.ai forward slash UFOART for 20% off. And thank you to Let's Make Art for sponsoring this episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and joining me on the podcast is a graduate of MIT and Stanford University, a successful entrepreneur, venture capitalist, video game pioneer, best-selling author, indie film producer and Galileo Project advisor. This is only to list a few of his many achievements and achievements and academic qualifications. I would be here all day if I went through them all. Uh, finally on the podcast, Rizvan Rizvert. Riz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. I hope I've done you justice there because you've got quite a background of accolades, achievements, um, groups you're a part of, groups of startups you've created. And, you know, you must be a very, very busy man. So uh, I want to try and get right into it to really make the most of your time today. Now, you released a book last October was the release date in the UK titled The Simulated Multiverse. And this was a follow up to the simulation hypotheses. And we're going to discuss kind of both of them within the, the body of this. I know many of the listeners have already at least got the first one, if the listener questions are anything to go by and have or plan to pick up the second. And that second book's full title is The Simulated Multiverse, an MIT computer scientist explores parallel universes, the simulation hypotheses, quantum computing, and the Mandela effect. That's that's quite a, a grouping there. So let's kick off with simulation and the idea of simulation hypotheses. And this has come up on the podcast before. And I'll start by saying I'm a huge fan of the Matrix series. And at 36 years of age, the late 90s, I was just about to hit my teens. It was probably that time a lot of us were introduced to the idea of, unless you were like an anime fan and saw Ghost in the Shell and those types of shows, that you could be inside some sort of living computer game or everything around you is simulation. That's how many of us got introduced to that idea. When you talk about simulations or simulation theory, is that what you're thinking of or is that too basic? Well, that's a flavor of simulation theory. And, you know, uh, for me too, that's when I, I started to contemplate it, you know, a little more seriously was when uh, the matrix came out in uh, 1999, but there were also several other simulation related films that came out that same year. One of which was called the 13th floor, which was based on a German TV show called World on a Wire, which was based on a book from the 1960s called Simulacron 3. Uh, and so I think if you look at The Matrix and you look at the 13th floor, you get a good sense of the different flavors 
of stimulation theory. But in, in, in each of the flavors, the idea is that we are inside a super realistic computer generated virtual world. Uh, and it's indistinguishable from physical reality. Um, now, when I talk about the flavors, uh, this is, I think, you know, the most important issue about simulation theory that doesn't get talked about enough. And, and, and that's why I tend to focus in on it. Uh, and that is the RPG versus the NPC flavors of simulation theory. And so NPC stands for non-player character. And so those are all the AIs, you know, within uh, video games. Uh, anyone who plays video games knows that, you know, you might run across a character that's a bartender or a bank teller or yeah. security guard, and maybe you shoot them or maybe, you do, you know, you get some money from them or you get a drink or whatever the case may be, uh, or maybe their opponents. Uh, and so, you know, when I think many academics talk about simulation theory, they're referring to uh, the idea that we are all AI within the simulation. Uh, uh, speaking of movies, there was a movie out last year called Free Guy. Uh, where uh, Ryan Reynolds played an, an NPC, right? And so that gives you a flavor for, you know, what the NPCs are. But at the other end of the spectrum is the RPG version or role-playing game version of simulation theory. And that, I think, is closer to what we saw in The Matrix. So in The Matrix, you know, the players, Neo, Morpheus, Trinity, existed outside of the simulation. In this case, they existed as physical beings outside of the simulation. They were plugged into the game in this case, literally, they had a wire that was plugged into the back of their head, you know, what we call brain-computer interface, uh, and they had an avatar, and they thought they were that avatar. And so, you know, that's the other version, and that's the one I think that many people think of in, in pop culture when we think about simulation theory. Now, the two are not mutually exclusive, right? In a game like World of Warcraft, you can have uh, both the... Uh, player characters, right? So you're doing role playing and you can have NPCs. And so if you mix those two together, then you get a very interesting, you know, version of simulation theory. But, but so, so those are the different aspects of simulation theory that, and that they're one of the axes on which, you know, you can kind of move to the, to the right or to the left. And, and uh, simulation theory became popular because of a professor at, at uh, Oxford named uh, Nick Bostrom who wrote a paper in 2003 called, Are, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And, uh, you know, I can get into that a little more uh, if you want in terms of details. But basically what he said was, for a technological civilization like ours that's developing computer technology, uh, there's a point at which you get to where you can build hyper-realistic simulations. You have the computing power, you have the algorithms, and you can build these virtual worlds uh, that's a point that I like to call the simulation point. And I'll tell a story in a little while about you know, how I started to think about the simulation point. Uh, but he basically said there's three possibilities. Uh, and I like to just boil them down to two because it's simpler. One, that this uh, technological civilization never gets to that point. Or two, it gets to that point and it creates not just one simulation, but creates lots and lots of simulations, right? Literally billions of simulations each of which have billions of simulated beings within them or trillions of simulated beings. I mean, all you need is more computer power, right? You just, you just fire up another server in the cloud uh, and you can simulate all these beings. And so, you know, that was the argument that people like Elon Musk were referencing. Like in 2016, Elon Musk made a statement that said that the chances that we are in base reality, which means we're not in a simulation, are one in billions. 
right? So that means this, the, the chances that we are in a simulation are billions to one or less, right? If you flip the, the fraction, you get the mm -hmm. exact number, <laughs> but it's a pretty likely number. And, and that's because there's only one base reality, but there's billions of simulated worlds with trillions of simulated beings. So if you live in a world, statistically, which one are you more likely to be in one of these or in the trillions or billions of those? If you're a sim, if you're a being, are you more likely to be one of these or are you more likely to be one of the larger numbers? So it was kind of a statistical argument. And so people have taken that to heart and that's gotten academics and scientists to think more seriously about this idea that you know we could be inside someone else's or our own uh, computer simulations. Now that implies primarily that everybody is an NPC. Uh, personally, I find the opposite uh, end of the spectrum more interesting where each of us are actually in a multiplayer game closer to what we saw in the matrix so yes. we kind of dove right in there to the issues so i don't know yeah no no there's a lot to back to up a little bit. no listen there's a lot to unpack and i'm glad a lot of what you've covered there i've got follow-ups on anyway so we're on the same page okay so let's start with in the matrix it's been created by the the computer world and they've taken over artificial intelligence is, is in charge and they've, they've plugged everyone in humanity and we're being used as batteries. You mentioned Free Guy. Um, Free Guy, great movie. Love watching it with my little boy. He's a big fan of the Marvel aspect of it, obviously. It's a fun film, but Ryan Reynolds is a, a non-playable character who becomes sentient within a computer game when he sort of breaks the rules. But he's in a game that's been created by developers. And I won't go into the story because that starts to spoil it a little bit. So there are creators for each of these simulations. So I suppose my first question is, does that mean if we are in a simulation, there has to be an origin or creator? Or are there, there are other possibilities? The simplest being that there is a, a godlike figure or figures started this off. Uh, yeah, so I think it implies that there are some types of creators uh, if we're inside a simulation. Now, does that mean that it has to be a single creator or a godlike figure? That's possible. Could it be that we are co-creators? Right? People always ask, well, what's outside the simulation? Right? Uh, is it aliens? Is it future versions of us? Right? So when Bostrom wrote his paper, he, he coined the term ancestor simulation. And so that would be like us creating, you know, like the game Civilization, where you're in the Roman Empire. Right? We are going back to our ancestors and we are simulating them in order to see you know, what might happen or in order to just play the game and, and, and see how, how much fun it could be. And so, you know, that's another possibility is that it's future us, right? Another possibility is that it is us, but physically outside this dimension in a way that does not look like our current world at all, right? Just like we can simulate Lord of the Rings online, our physical world doesn't look like, you know, Middle Earth, at least, well, except for uh, New Zealand, I guess, does. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now with the, uh, the new show coming out, we're, we're seeing some of that scenery <laughs> again. Uh, not but, long, not long. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, there's that possibility that it's a completely different type of physical universe and that we are one of those that are being simulated. And so, you know, there are different ideas. But one of the reasons why I find simulation theory so interesting is that uh, basically it, it, it provides a framework and a way to think about the spiritual or religious ideas uh, about uh, and religions have been telling us since the beginning of time that this is not the real world, right? <laughs> that this is in some type of illusion or maya. 
in the Quran, they even mentioned this is a game <laughs> that was set up for you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, all the religions have pretty much been telling us in some form or another that this isn't the real world. There's another world outside of this. But again, it could be that we are creating these aspects ourselves. And so it could be that we are non-physical bodies. We are consciousness, either that it's evolved to some point, And we need to get, we need to put on the virtual reality headset, It's which is not just virtual reality, right? In the Matrix, it wasn't just that you saw, right? If somebody punched you, you actually felt it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a famous scene where, you know, Morpheus, where Neo asks Morpheus, is this real? Because you know, he, he got taken out of the matrix and then put into another mini matrix or yeah. a mini simulation where he's sitting in this red chair and it's all white around. He says, is this real? And Morpheus says, well, what is real? Real is a reality is a series of, of electrical signals going into your brain. And so it's possible that you put on this not regular multi virtual reality, what we think of as virtual reality, but more like a uh, full interface that lets you feel everything that's going on with your avatar right and and that gives us uh the ability to experience and and again people say well why do we make you know why would somebody make a simulation of us and i say well why do we make simulations right and there's usually two reasons at least two reasons maybe there's more many more but one of which is uh in the kind of uh pure you know ai computer simulation we like to see what will happen Right. We like to run the simulation to see if the weather, you know, what is the likely outcome uh, or if there's a pandemic or if there's, you know, a meteor strike. Right? We run these computer programs, these simulations, and we try to see all the different possible outcomes and we run them multiple times to see what what the outcome is. Uh, as, or in some cases we say, well, this is the, the, the most optimal outcome. So we try to select from those and then we try to vary the parameters so that reality lines up with that simulation. Uh, and then the other big reason is to have fun, <laughs> to have experiences that we can't have. I mean, I talked about Lord of the Rings. If you think of fantasy games, I, I can't necessarily fly on a dragon in uh, quote unquote real life, but I can do it inside a video game. So there are experiences that perhaps we can have outside, but it definitely implies that there is something outside physical reality. Now, what that something is, you know, that's up for debate. If I can boil it down to a crude analogy that we're in some sort of complex version of The Sims, there's the option on something like The Sims where there are multiple players and they could all have a say in building that simulation. Now, we look at, you mentioned religion and each religion has its figureheads. Some have multiple figureheads. Is there a possibility that there are multiple gods or creators of our simulation and they all have a hand in how it how it's being played, how it's being run. Some may be more interested than others. And just to tie it back a little bit to the UFO topic, we hear from people about different species being involved, some being future humans, some being from distant galaxies, the other realities. Is it a chance that they all have a part to play in in this simulation as such that we we may be in? Yeah, I think that is definitely possible that it's not just you know, one creator, but rather, you know, I call it the great simulation, which has been running for a while and it will be running for a while. And you can have different factions, right? Both outside the simulation and inside the simulation. And in a multiplayer game, you know, no one person gets to decide exactly what happens. In a multiplayer game, like, you know, for example, Second Life or uh, Minecraft or some of these other games, 
you can actually create like with Second Life and, and Roblox and some of these, some of these two, you have these tools to create pieces of the simulation that you own, quote unquote, uh, and then other people can come and see that. And so you may have these different groups uh, that are kind of running the simulation for their own ends. You know, kind of like the Hunger Games where people are watching and some people are rooting for one player and others are rooting for another player. So there's definitely, you know, that that possibility. And now when you talk about UFOs, you know, where does it intersect with simulation theory in, 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 in many different ways? But yet this idea that the UFOs may not be physical UFOs uh, coming from another planet or solar system within our physical universe, uh, but they may be coming from another dimension or they may be coming from another time. And so I think that's one of the areas, you know, where it overlaps. Uh, another area is, you know, I spent some time talking with Jacques Vallée, whom I'm sure your, uh, your listeners know as the UFO podcast. Uh, and, you know, he was telling me about multiple scenarios where he would interview UFO witnesses and you'd have a situation where one person saw the UFO and the other person standing next to them didn't see the UFO. Right. And, you know, I've heard many stories where, you know, the UFO materializes right, right in daylight. You're just sitting there watching and suddenly this thing just appears. Right. Uh, now, uh, you know, one explanation for that could be some type of cloaking, but that doesn't account for the fact that some people can see them and others can't. Uh, but if they are being rendered inside a video game, then that makes a little more sense. I mean, this is how we render things in video games all the time. So for example, I'm not really talking to you right now. Right? I'm talking to my computer. Those bits are being transferred to a server. They're being transmitted to your computer. Your computer is rendering me speaking and then same the other way. Now, what we do in video games is because each character has their own you know, set of data uh, and their own parameters, we can make it so that a level Suppose you're a level 30 character and I'm a lowly, you know, level two character inside the game. Now you could see something in the scene and say, look, I see it. It's right there next to the trees. And my character would look at the trees and not see it. And that's all being controlled by the perception of who the server decides. Um, and it could even be that there are other players who accept their visibility for, you know, this person can see it, that person can't see it. And so you get into a lot of these interesting situations. I remember one case Jacques told me about, he said it was, I think it was in Northern California or, or nor in the Northwest U.S., uh, like Oregon or someplace, a place where they had these giant redwood trees. And there was some something on the ground that indicated something had landed, something physical. And then, you know, after the uh, other investigators left, Jacques spent some time with the, the witnesses. And he said, wait, you said the UFO came down at a 45 degree angle uh, and then landed you know, right over there. They said, yeah, that's right. And he goes, well, there are these giant redwood trees. <laughs> That means it would have had to go through the redwood trees. And, and they were like, yeah, that's true. But we didn't want to say that to the other people because then we'll sound nuts. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. Right. And so it's almost if you've ever played a video game where you're rendering something like there's a period of time where you can move through the walls and stuff. And then once things get rendered, you can't move through the walls anymore. And so, you know, it, it makes sense to me that whatever's happening with this phenomenon, there's a material component and a non-material component. And if you adopt the framework of a simulation uh, and people that may be you know, both players of the simulation, but also people that are uh, people, quote unquote, that are outside the simulation are able to send things into the simulation and are able to watch our reactions, which is another thing that Jacques says, is that sometimes he thinks it's a kind of a, like a puppet show, right? Some kind of a show yeah. 
that's being set up to watch our reactions or, or you know, uh, there, there's some kind of deception going on there, right? Since I began the podcast, I've spoken to listeners from all walks of life. One of those that comes up quite regularly are doctors and physicians. If you're one of those looking for a change, then consider Locum Tenens. Whether you're burned out, need a change of pace, or are just looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens may be the solution for you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your speciality, compare different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if Locum's is right for you. It's a win-win. If this sounds like a completely free resource you could use, then please use podcast link zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod two that's the number two that's zen.ai forward slash that ufo pod two to let them know that that ufo podcast sent you yeah for, and for me that's really interesting because that trickster element of the phenomenon is talked about quite a lot and i wonder if again being in a simulation with with multiple creators or multiple players on the outside it would make sense if they had different agendas. You know, if you're playing The Sims with your friends, everyone's really bought into it at first. And say there's three or four of you playing the game, you've all got the same idea. Let's let's build a town. Let's build a city. Someone wants to do it properly. Someone starts the game but gets bored and heads off and loses interest. They, they've kind of given up their stake. Someone else, halfway through, decides, actually, I want to cause a bit of chaos. Let's set a riot off in the town. And you, you can do all sorts of things. And someone else says... Right. Let's start a massive crime spree and set some buildings on fire and everything becomes chaotic. And then they are now at loggerheads. And do they just leave the simulation to run free? And I suppose some people would argue the state of the, the world at the moment, maybe the simulation has been left to to kind of run without much supervision. That's a, another argument for another time. But I suppose to me that helps make a little bit of sense that if there are multiple people or, or species looking at us and influencing us as a civilization over time, not just now, that that would explain multiple players, multiple gods, whatever you want to label them as, aliens, you know, demons, spirits. It, it starts to make sense of that for me. I want to ask you something, Riz. Tom DeLong has said that very recently in an interview, uh, collectively, we can influence reality by just thinking it, by creating it ourselves. And whether you want to call that making your own luck, but he was literally talking about collectively manifestation of what you want to happen. Can ha- And governments apparently know this. And that's Tom DeLong being Tom DeLong and just going off the rails a little bit in conversation. Again, would this being a simulation lend itself to this idea, thinking about the Matrix, thinking about Neo being told, you know, you can bend the spoon. Ultimately, Neo ends up flying and manipulating his whole reality round about him. Do you think by having that higher awareness of a control that we are in, we can also can manipulate the system round about us? Yeah, I think we can. I mean, there is an element. I didn't hear that specific interview with Tom DeLong. I uh, think you know, it might have uh, been uh, with um, Steve-O. You know, Steve-O from Jackass has a podcast called Steve-O's Wild Ride. It was just okay. a few months ago. Uh, he's alluded to it before, but yeah, it was it was very much paraphrasing, but word for word, that was his, his quote, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's interesting because it, it sort of implies that we together, you know, are creating what's going on in the simulation, but we aren't mm. always aware of these powers or these superpowers as in the case of Neo and in the, uh, you know, the, the Hindu yoga and Buddhist traditions, 
you know, there's a lot of this, they, they even have terms for them. They're called siddhas, right? And they get developed by advanced yogis who get to the point where they realize, oh, physical reality isn't what we think it is. Therefore, they can manipulate it and do things within it, you know? And, and I think spoon bending is an interesting one because, you know, it's in the matrix. People see it in the matrix. They assume it can't be done, but then there's a whole group of people who run spoon bending parties. You know, I have a friend in Sedona. She runs spoon bending parties every month. And, you know, you can go there and you can experience, not exactly like it was in the Matrix, but, you know, I, I mentioned this at Google when I spoke at Google and they were like totally with me through the whole AI component of simulation theory. But, you know, then when I mentioned, oh yeah, and, uh, you know, there's this group, they just, you know, over at the uh, IONS conference the other night, here's some pictures and they said they bet these spoons and people were like, oh, come on, that's fake. There's no, right? And so it's almost like, you know, even to the point where you have to like show, here's the spoon that I bet. <laughs> doing it but the thing with spoon bending that's interesting is it's much easier to do in a group of people right it's it's, it's much harder to do on your own and so there there may be this pliability to reality but there, it may also involve multiple people which to me looks more like a multiplayer game where you have the more people you know that kind of vote if you think of like blockchain today right corporations in the past were you know specific hierarchical corporations, and now there's these things called these things called DAOs, distributed app, uh, organizations, right? Basically, um, and so what what they do is you know the power is spread out amongst the group of voters within it, and so you know I think there may be something uh, to that general that general idea, and you know I think there is an overlap with the the phenomenon, and you know I, I finally got to meet Lou Elizondo recently. Um, and, uh, you know, at the Galileo uh, conference that, that mm-hmm. we just had uh, over at Harvard. And, you know, he, in, and his take was, well, it could be outer space, inner space, and everything in between, right? And, you know, he doesn't talk a lot about that, but he always mentions it, right? And, and so, you know, I think with the government, you know, they, they don't really, when they talk about it publicly, I mean, they don't really acknowledge that side of it, right? It's more of a, hey, yeah. this is a nuts and bolts thing if they're here. They're in our airspace. They're potentially a threat. We need to find out, you know, what's going on with the civilization. But it, my suspicion is that internally from people that I talk to, they understand that it's more than just the nuts and bolts thing, but they're not quite, they don't know quite how to deal with that, right? They don't have the mechanism or the terminology to put that into, you know, any kind of report or legislation. So they have to keep it to the nuts and bolts side. Otherwise, it's not really, I mean, it is a defense issue, but not really. It becomes like a, a weird responsibility issue in terms of, you know, e- even within the Galileo project, I mean, the goal is to, to have telescopes so that we can we can look and, and actually get scientific data that, you know, is controlled within a controlled environment with instruments that are controlled. Even, the, even they're primarily concerned, you know, with looking at, you know, these physical objects because that's what science knows how to do. I, I like to think of science as, as helping us develop the understand the physics engine of the simulation, right? And so when we build video games now, it used to be you had to program the physics. Like if you think back to like really old school games, like to, when I was a kid, like asteroids, you know, and the ship would like kind of float like that or float like that if you turned it. And so now there's these components called physics engines, and you can change the physics engines, you can change the constants, you can make it so you can fly, but you know, each game has its kind of fixed physics engine that the creators of the simulation agree on and they decide, but they're always super users, right? So you can always have super users who can tweak those constants and the developers can do that as well. 
And, and that's where I think, you know, when we talk about influencing reality, we're kind of tapping into that larger power to co-create pieces of the simulation. Uh, but we've sort of forgotten that, that we are also the creators. How do we go about beginning to try and prove these sorts of hypotheses that we live in a simulation? Is it even something that is provable? Well, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. And of course, this is one of the reasons why many scientists try to dismiss simulation theory, because they say, well, it's non-falsifiable, meaning you can never prove that it's not true, right? Uh, because the simulation could be so good that there's just no uh, evidence. But that said, in my opinion, just because something, you can't prove something is not true, doesn't mean that you can't find some evidence that it might be true, right? Um, and so, for example, you know, when we talk about science, you know, I always use the example of, of rocks falling from the sky. And for hundreds of years, you know, European scientists thought this was nonsense. Yet they kept hearing reports from, you know, people in the countryside saying, hey, there's rocks fell from the sky. And the reaction was, well, no, there are no rocks in the sky. So obviously this must be nonsense, right? And that reminds me a lot of how mainstream scientists have reacted uh, to UFO reports. Well, they can't be aliens because there are no aliens that can reach us because of Einstein, you know? And, and so they kind of have that. But then eventually they found evidence of these rocks. And when, you know, there were like literally thousands of them fell on one French town and, you know, the uh, scientific society in Paris, they sent somebody out to investigate. They said, yeah, I mean, not only, you know, do we have multiple accounts of these things actually happening, but the rocks themselves don't match any composition of anything here. And they match this other, these other reports and this other rock we have from you know, 50 years ago that supposedly also fell from the, uh, the sky. And so the problem wasn't so much that you couldn't show that, it was that we had the wrong model for that. And so you eventually had to find evidence. So I think you know, it is possible that, that we find evidence. Now there's a groups, there are different groups you know, who are looking at, at this idea, can we find evidence we're in a simulation? Uh, there's a group led by uh, physicist Tom Campbell uh, who you might know, or some of your listeners might know, he wrote a book called My Big Toe, My Big Theory of Everything. And he's been talking about this idea that we're in a virtual reality for a lot longer than most people. I think it was 2003 when he first published that as well. And so he's working with um, a group, uh, a, uh, a professor from Caltech and uh, Cal Poly, and they wrote a paper basically trying to show that the quantum observer effect phenomena you know, is the same as uh, being an observer in a video game. And, and you know, I find this kind of interesting and compelling, and I talk a lot about it in my book, is we've all heard of the observer effect, but no one's been able to understand why it works or even how it works, right? There's a lot of different theories. Uh, and, you know, the basic idea will be familiar probably to most people. Schrodinger's cat is the, the easiest way to explain it, which is that yeah. you have this cat in this box with some radiation and a poison, and you have a 50% chance that the poison gets released and a 50% chance the poison doesn't get released. And so there's a 50% chance the cat is alive and 50% chance the cat is dead. And so common sense tells us the cat must be alive or it must be dead after an hour. We don't know because we haven't looked. And what quantum mechanics tells us is no, the cat is both alive and dead. It's in what they call a state of superposition. It's like two positions of the variable. And it's not until somebody observes it or you know, there's some debate on what constitutes an observation. It could be a measurement, uh, et cetera. But until that observation happens, 
neither of those possibilities is true and both of those possibilities are true and then once somebody looks at it the probability wave collapses to a single possibility uh, which is say the cat is alive and so now you have you're at that now to me that reminds me a lot of how video games are built right because a lot of computer science and, and you know computer programming is all about optimization so you know if back in the 80s uh, they were trying to build a game like Fortnite, right? Real-time multiplayer on a mobile phone. They just wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> Why is it too many pixels or the Sims online, right? Like talking about 3D multiplayer games. Uh, too many pixels, not enough processing power, communication speed wasn't there. But, you know, you, and if you ask somebody who just looked at the brute force method, you'd say we'd never be able to keep track of that many pixels across so many different computers. But we, we were, we are able to do that. Why? Because we did optimization and we only render that which our character observes in the video game. So my avatar is walking in a scene and your avatar is walking in a scene. Well, those get rendered on each of our computers, but only you know the, the part that we can see. Our, my computer doesn't have to render the whole world with all of the pixels. It only needs to show that which is being observed. And so that to me gives us a why you know, for these types of quantum effects as well. When you look at it, it, it becomes an optimization method. And it also means there's some element of randomness or choice that's going on here that we don't fully understand, but it allows us to, um, you know, to see these things. And then when multiple players are in the same room, oftentimes there's information that's cached on the server in a video game and, and cached on the client. And by caching, it just means we keep track of you know, what's to the left and right, because that's what you're going to need to see next, right? You not only need to see the current room, but you need to be able to see the next room. But you don't need to, the room that's, you know, 50, 50 miles away, because it's going to take you forever to get there right now. You can get to that when you get there. And so those are all like tricks that we use in the video game industry. And, you know, it seems like when you get to quantum mechanics, um, that there are some weird tricks going on here. And they remind me of optimizations being made. Uh, and also trying out different paths, which you know we can talk about in a minute with the multiverse. Yeah. When you mentioned Free Guy, Ryan Reynolds' character in the game doesn't have free will because he is repeating patterns and going over the same routine. He goes to an ATM, always wanting to have the money for this pair of shoes, these this pair of sneakers, and he never just has enough. And it's the same every day. He orders the same coffee at the same place, and the routine is there. And when he realizes that you know, he can't do certain things and he doesn't have free will, he manages to break the cycle. But what would happen to the notion of free will for us if we discovered that we were in a simulation? Would that change a lot? Do you think people would panic? The idea that well, we're not really in charge of things for ourselves? Yeah, well, some people believe that, right? Some people say, well, we don't want to find out if we're in a simulation for a couple of reasons. There was a philosophy professor who wrote a op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago, and he said, we shouldn't try to find out if we're in a simulation. And the reason why is because then the simulators might shut us off, right? <laughs> and so the whole simulation will be over. Yep. And, and you know, that's an interesting point uh, because it depends on the purpose of the simulation, right? Uh, in, I mentioned the 13th floor earlier. And what I like about that is, so, I mean, this is a 20... 22, 23 year old movie. So I think I can give away. <laughs> yeah, happens, yeah. But, you know, they're in the 90s and they create what we today would call an ancestor simulation of the 1940s. 
And so they've got all these characters living their lives, or maybe 1930s in, in this previous time frame. And then the character from the current time can actually hop in and take over like somebody's body. And so they can experience that time. And then eventually when he comes back to the 90s, they realize that they're actually in a simulation and there's somebody coming from the future. And what the person from the future, you know, is this woman, she says, well, we created thousands of simulations and you're the only one that created your own simulation <laughs> and you're using human computing power. So we, we're going to have to shut you down. Right? Yeah. And so we're going to shut down the simulation. And so, you know, that's one possibility uh, of, of uh, you know, uh, of simulation theory that maybe bothers some people. Uh, but of course, that I think it gets back to the, the thing that I started with, which, which to me is the most crucial aspect of simulation theory, which is the NPC versus the RPG question. Right? So if we're NPCs, then we are just code that's running. But if we're RPGs, then we do have an element of free will because we exist outside of the game and we are making choices for our player within parameters, perhaps, that we have set for ourselves, right? So like when I play a game, I might choose to be, you know, I might choose to be, you know, a barbarian with, you know, strength of 100 and you're getting back to Dungeons and Dragons. All, all of these role-playing games are based on Dungeons and Dragons where yeah. you have, we, we used to have a character sheet and we would actually literally write out, you know, this is your cunning, this is your wisdom, this is your intelligence. <laughs> and you'd roll the dice and you get these numbers and then you'd roll the dice, just like in Stranger Things, right? It's so yeah. popular nowadays. Um, but it's possible that we also have storylines, you know, that we have laid out for our characters, but it, it still gives you this ability to have free will. And so some people think, well, if we're in a simulation, then everybody's going to go around killing everybody and there's no point to anything, right? And, and again, that depends. If, if, you go, if you think we're in an NPC simulation, uh, you might not have some free will, or, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of how we run simulations, we try out different things and we set parameters and we say, okay, let's change these parameters and let's see what happens, right? And so it could be that if we live in a simulated multiverse, which is the subject of my, my second book, that we are trying out these different scenarios. Uh, and, you know, I got to thinking about this from uh, reading speeches uh, by science fiction writer Philip K. Dick and, and interviewing his wife, Tessa. But so, uh, you know, before we get into that, I, I'm of the opinion that thinking that we're in a simulation can also have an empowering effect, which is that when we're in a video game, we have challenges. And those challenges are part and parcel of the game, right? Uh, I mean, if you had a game with no challenges, then it wouldn't be very much fun. And in fact, in the Matrix, in the sequels, if you remember, uh, in, the, in the sequels they revealed there was an earlier Matrix and that the first version was this kind of idyllic life. And, you know, no, nobody took that seriously. <laughs> like the humans didn't believe that was reality, right? And so they had to create this grittier version of the Matrix. And there was a, a guy who's sort of the grandfather of the video game industry, Nolan Bushnell. He started Atari back in the 1970s. And he had a saying, which was, uh, you know, make the game, you know, easy to play, but hard to master. And that's what makes for a fun game. And I think that mm. is, is what makes for a fun in the game of life as well. It's easy to play, right? But it's not so easy to master necessarily. And if you didn't have these challenges, uh, you know, the game would not be very interesting. So a good way to think about it is perhaps we've set up these challenges for ourselves. I mean, we all go through various periods of, significant problems and challenges, whether it's financial, economic, relationships, health, especially, right? 
Uh, and we might say, well, this sucks. This is a, a terrible simulation, right? Yeah. If that's the case, I'd, I'd, I'd rather make myself a millionaire and have perfect health and not do anything. But, you know, perhaps this, this is part and parcel of why we want to experience the simulation because maybe we don't have those things outside the simulation. And so it gives us a different way to, I think, get a perspective on our lives as being a series of quests and challenges. And if at first you don't succeed, well, you're going to keep playing the quest, right? You're not going to say, oh, I'm going to abandon the game necessarily. Like um, re- and- reincarnation being a chance to start again and go, do you know what? Next time I'm going to come back as one of Elon Musk's kids and I'm going to start with the, I've put the cheat codes in. I'm starting with a billion dollars and life's going to be fun, like playing GTA with that unlimited money. And yeah, or maybe you want to make things a bit harder next time, or maybe someone's making those choices for you, depending depending on what you've done. When you mention... Yeah. I think you're right on that, by the way. And I think there's this idea of a difficulty factor. So, you know, we should keep that in mind that just because somebody has an easier life, you know, doesn't mean like certain games, if you turn up the difficulty factor, right, you actually get more points from playing the more difficult version, even though you might not get as far. Uh, And so it's a bigger accomplishment. So let's keep that in mind as well. Yeah, if you're if you're putting more work in, then the the reward at the end is greater. You're going to you're you're going to reap the rewards for the hard work and the effort, and that that can be true of life, and and hopefully that's true of for many of the listeners listening to this as well. You mentioned multiverse. How does that come into it? Is there an opportunity that if there are multiple timelines, and I am living multiple lives, I always love the notion that with the universe being endless, that there is a reality or universe somewhere where I am Batman is always one of the great one of the great quotes because everything's happening everywhere all the time and that would be a tragic sorry state if i was batman i know but you know <laughs> it's, it's got to be somewhere but is there an opportunity for me to converse with other versions of myself in different simulations i started to think and stopped because i'm not intelligent enough to do it but is that where dreams come into it when you're dreaming are you accessing some of those other realities or if people are seeing ghosts, is it a kind of bleed over of a different reality, a different dimension, a different a different multiverse, universe? Is is that along the lines of what you think or what are the possibilities there? Yeah, so the possibilities are, you know, pretty interesting. And so I mentioned quantum physics earlier and you know, they don't nobody really understands quantum physics. That's what Richard uh, uh, Feynman said. Um, he was a Nobel Prize winner and one of the other interpretations is that not just, you know, the cat is alive or dead, but that there are two worlds and we split off into two universes, one where the cat is alive and one where the cat is dead. And so, you know, that then leads to more decisions and you end up with more and more universes. And so pretty much anything that could have happened has happened along one of these paths. Right? And, and I started to think about this because after, after my uh, simulation hypothesis book came out, I was sitting down with a friend of mine, uh, another graduate from MIT, who was working for Google. And so he had come to Mountain View where I was living, just down the road from the Googleplex. And he said, well, you know, have you heard of this thing called the Mandela effect? I said, yeah, I've heard of it, but you know, I, I didn't really pay too much attention to it at the time. And he goes, well, you know, simulation theory might explain it. I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, and, and so I started to go down this rabbit hole of the Mandela effect, which you may have talked about probably at some point. Do me a favor, though, because there are some listeners who might not be familiar with the concept. Some will, some won't, if you don't mind just explaining again about the Mandela effect. 
If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot AI slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should see because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jake?